Welcome to On The Move, a podcast that explores the realities of migrants and refugees across the Middle East. On The Move is produced by BCARS, the Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies. We enter the building, leaving the bright sunny street and making our way up the dimly lit stairs. As we climb higher, so does the temperature. But an improvised fan in our meeting room provides some relief. We're greeted by Suad and welcomed to Ma'an's office. Ma'an is an NGO that assists refugees in Cairo and is also the site of our first focus group of the day. We brought cookies, tea, and juice. We placed them on the table. This takes up most of the space in the small meeting room where we gather. The walls are mostly bare. There is a UNHCR poster taped to the wall, warning not to take bribes. As people file in, so do the sounds of car horns, birds outside, music from passing car radios. Sun filters in through one window. Several attempts to begin the conversation are made, but then they're interrupted as new people join us. Can you tell us how you entered Egypt? Amira poses this question to the group, and the stories begin. What you just heard was an excerpt from observation or field notes that we took in Cairo. I hope this gives you a sense of the place as we discuss the insights from interviews we conducted with refugees there. I'm Dennis Sullivan. I'm director of BCARS, the Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies, and I'm the host of this podcast. Joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Amira Mohammed and Allison Hawkins. Amira is a visiting scholar with us at BCARS, and Allison is the assistant director. As you may have heard in our inaugural podcast, we explored then the topic of responsibility sharing regarding the Syrian refugee crisis. We were in Cairo, and Cairo is host to a number of Syrian refugees, among many, many others. And so we explored in the conference that topic, but we also used the time we were in Cairo to engage in fieldwork. We spoke with African and Syrian refugees about conditions on the ground, their needs, their concerns. And so today we'd like to highlight some of the lessons we learned from speaking with those various refugees in our first visits, our first visits of that conference, that is. We've been exploring this issue for years, and Amira, you've lived this issue your whole life. So, Amira, um, you organized the meetings. Um, please give us a, a bit of the context. Uh, who were we meeting with? Uh, what were their backgrounds? Uh, again, some of these are your friends. Some of these are people you worked with for many years. Um, just tell us anything you'd like to about the organization, about the people specifically, anything. So we're here at Man, and we were motivated to visit uh, this um, long-established organization and we also very, cu very curious to hear from refugees about their perspective, how they perceive their life in Egypt, uh, who are the um, partners or stakeholders who share responsibility and whether they are doing that in the most satisfactory way for refugees. We're here at MAN. MAN is one of the NGOs uh, that has been uh, working with refugees. Um, it's a good opportunity for me to come back and revisit. Man has been there for more than 20 years, and I had the honor to be one of the co-founders. So it was great to come back. Um, Man was probably one of few organizations working with refugees, and this has 
it should be understood in the in the overall uh, pol political climate in Egypt that govern the operation of um, NGOs. So uh, apart from Man uh, and Tadamun, I think these are the only two organizations that survived from the old time, my old time. Even though we should also recognize the emergence of uh, new organization and that what I mean by that the organization that work was was Syrian refugees so um, a bit of a context here um, we are meeting with uh, uh, we met with a number of organization in Cairo um, man Tadamun and uh, Raya which uh, works with Syrian refugees uh, here at man specifically and probably we have done the same thing on all this organization we met with uh, NGO representative but also most importantly for us was uh, to meet with representative from the um, refugee community individual members in the refugee community uh, who happened to share with us interesting insight they are refugees or people live in refugee likely situation or migrants they come from uh, many countries, uh, including uh, South Sudan, Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, and also uh, Syria. Uh, one observation that we might, one can notice, you know, especially those who have been working with refugees for the last 20 years, the number of NGOs working, national especially, NGOs working with refugees are is shrinking, and there is no surprise with the passing of a new NGO law in, uh, in Egypt. Um, and also the um, influx of refugees and the political situation, even though it remains the same, but probably it's a little bit the demography changing with the arrival of, uh, of Syrians. We have more and more Syrians, and they help to um, structure probably the scene around refugees. And now everywhere we go, you hear the word uh, Syrian refugees and non-Syrian refugees. So on the key things we spoke with refugees, we found that there are similar situation, even with this divide, Syrians and non-Syrian share probably the same um, life conditions. So this is yeah, a bit of background on what we've been doing. Well, Amira, um, we kind of got taken away with you emotionally, I think. I, I think that was an emotional review you gave us, not just a, a clinical <laughs> professional review. And so I, I thank you for that. And um, clearly this has been part of your life for so many years, your whole life. But 20 years ago, I think it was, that you co-founded this wonderful organization, Mayan, who hosted us. Um, how how have things changed? How do you see the change in, in these past 20 years? Uh, clearly the world has turned in so many different directions, a lot of negative directions for refugees, but what's your own view on how this 20 years has changed? Well, I, um, I think um, going back 20 years later to Cairo to observe how refugees are doing, the world changed, but you know the discourse around refugees never changed, and if changed, changed to the worse. Mm. So probably three things I I came out with from this um, revisiting the refugee situation in Cairo was one, not surprisingly, the crisis is protracted. These people have been there forever, and they don't know what is the next step. And this is supported by recent research that says the average stay of migrants and refugees in their host countries is now 27 years. So it's no longer a temporary situation and hence it requires 
uh, non-temporary solutions. The yeah. second thing is that um, was Cairo was traditionally a host for refugees from uh, from Africa, with probably the exception of um, Iraqis who uh, came to Egypt seeking refuge after the Gulf War. And they were there for a short time, and they were some of them were resettled, some of them went back. So they were not a, like a big community, and they didn't stay for too long. But now Syrians are there, and we have a new discourse on nationalities and identities and backgrounds of refugees, and obviously it puts uh, Syrians with, non- with African in a very stark um, confrontation. The third thing is the issues affecting civil society. And this, as I mentioned earlier, um, this uh, has to do with the, with the overall pol- political condition in Egypt. Um, civil society has never been, they didn't have the f- freedom to do whatever they want before. And they were al- always taken by receiving foreign funds from donors who have a hidden agenda. So ha- this has been there for almost 20 years, probably 30 years back. But now it's more fierce, it's more dangerous. NGO leaders and activists are they're taken to prison. They are put in a travel ban. And if if Egyptian uh, activists are restricted in that way, you can just imagine the situation of refugees who want to work on their own issues. Um, so Man, take Man as an example. Man now is almost their activities are on hold because mm-hmm. they are no in no place to receive uh, funds. Mm-hmm. And also Tadamon, after you know they had seventeen offices across the country, now they have only three offices. Good Lord, yeah. Yeah. So the the the, the situation is is more complex in terms mm-hmm. of the number of refugees and their backgrounds. But the services are cut down and less, mm-hmm. and the discourse is more and more hostile against um, refugees. Well, now I get a chance to reflect, and it's not 20 years, but it's 30 years, because this is exactly the story I've been investigating, researching, studying, uh, knocking my head against the wall for 30 years, uh, This the, the, the dire situation of civil society organizations in Egypt. Um, and... Uh, it's worse now under the current regime, uh, even than it was under Mubarak, and that was really bad. Uh, and it was worse, you know. That was, yeah, it's been bad for 30 years, and now at a most critical time, uh, with with more and more refugees and the protracted nature of refugees, as you just said. I mean, we hear this statistic all the time. Oh, a protracted refugee situations means anything lasting longer than, okay, five years. But in reality, refugees will be refugees for 17 to 25 years. Or, And there's 20 years of your life right there that you can show that. And now we're looking at the Syrian refugee crisis, which is 5 million Syrians scattered around the world, but especially in the region of the Middle East. I think, you know, our job mm-hmm. <laughs> in BCARS is to go country by country by country mm-hmm. and Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey and Egypt and maybe we'll get to Iraq and look at these uh, look at these really dire situations. But again, uh, I'll ask you to reflect more, but this question of civil society organizations. I mean, these are indigenous organizations at a time when the government's not taking care of refugees. So this is where the civil society organizations always step up but if they step up and they get their heads lopped off by the government, if they can't even operate legally or officially, or if they can't accept money internationally or even locally, then civil society isn't even going to be there for these refugees. Ali, let me uh, ask you for, for some 
um, your thoughts as well about well about the field work that we did. You were part of these conversations, um, and what was what did what did you take away that uh, from these discussions with refugees and our visits, our even our tours of the you know the different parts of Cairo uh, where we went. Um, what did you see as the most, you know, most important or most challenging aspect uh, that you see these various refugee communities uh, facing? It was a, it was a really a learning experience for me. Um, most of my studies background has been looking at the refugee situation in Jordan. Mm. So I learned a lot from accompanying you both on the field work, going to the focus group, speaking with refugees in Cairo. I guess there are three things that that I really took away from listening to these conversations. The first is that, as Amira said, Syrian refugees and non-Syrian African refugees that we spoke with, they all had fairly similar concerns, things that they cited as Mm -hmm. challenges in their everyday lives. The first of which that I'd like to highlight is education. Some of the NGO workers we spoke with in Cairo said that education was an underdeveloped arena in response efforts to the refugee crisis, and that was an area that really needed more research and more capacity building. Some of the Sudanese refugees we spoke with, they mentioned that they could go to government schools at primary and secondary levels, as well as Syrians and Palestinians, they can do this too. But refugees from other nationalities didn't say that they had this opportunity, so the result is that there are a lot of young children who aren't participating in formal school systems. And communities there, they try to fill these education gaps with informal forms of education. But the ultimate result is that, you know, we're losing years of school for a lot of refugee youth in Cairo. Another issue in education um, is just that there's some discrimination happening in the schools themselves. And this is something that a lot of refugees echoed to us in their comments, just that Sudanese children, for example, would suffer from racism and discrimination. And that was a really challenging thing for a lot of them. The second point that people brought up as being particularly challenging was access to health services. Mm. A lot of the Syrians that we spoke with identified this as a challenge, just accessing basic health care. African refugees also noted that since the Syrians have come to Cairo, there's this perceived decrease in the assistance, uh, health care assistance hmm. that African refugees receive. And mm-hmm. some of them were framing it as a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. So particularly because assistance, as Mira mentioned, any kind of assistance to refugees yeah. is already very limited and yeah. constrained in this context. And the third point that a lot of people brought up as being particularly challenging was just being able to pay rent. Mm. Refugees in Cairo are urban. Uh, They don't live in refugee camps. So the ability to find housing, you know, on the same playing field as everyone else is, is a huge challenge. And combining that with the high cost of living that exists in Cairo It's a really difficult thing for lots of refugees to find stable housing. And then one of the things that happens as a result of this is refugee communities will gather and they're sequestered, you know, Mm -hmm. priced out of safer neighborhoods. And they were mentioning that they were in, I guess, like rougher parts of Cairo. I use that in quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
these three areas, education, access to health services, and rent, were kind of the three arenas that people cited as being particularly challenging. Well, again, even as even though I was there and heard and heard these same stories, I mean, when when we repeat them and resummarize them, my heart just keeps breaking uh, every, every time we we think about it. I, you know, we uh, we talk about refugees, 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 Syrian refugees, non-Syrian refugees, African refugees, non-African refugees, and we keep talking about refugees. And so that tends to. I wonder if people listening tend to also just. You know, just clump them together as oh, that's a that's a finite group of people. It's a select poor things. Yeah, um, and just to build off that, I think it also is important to keep in the back of our minds. You know, we sit here on this podcast and talk about refugees, this Syrian refugees, this African refugees, this. But these groups aren't monoliths, and there's a lot right. of um, variances in their experiences, even within these groups that we we discuss them in so that's an important yeah, thing to keep in mind as well exactly and and i mean this is another point i was gonna i wanted to emphasize that it's 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 a very sensitive topic but you, you know we've we've all raised it in one way or another i'm gonna hit it over the head and that's this question of racism racism exists as we know every in every society i think or virtually every society on the planet or if it's not out-and-out racism, it's at least an awareness of distinction. You know, uh, whether it's in Belgrade or Berlin uh, or uh, or Cairo uh, or Istanbul, uh, which I've seen it happen in all of those places, Syrian refugees are kind of more preferred refugee. Not that they're welcome with open arms uh, because they're refugees, but, oh, We'd rather have Syrian refugees than, let's say, Sudanese refugees or Somali refugees. And even the folks that we talked to, um, Nadia, a Sudanese refugee herself, but who also works for Ma'an, this NGO that supports refugees, even she um, identified this, that there's, there's a preference for Syrians. And I, I'll just grab my notes uh, from my field work and just, <laughs> I, I also wrote down, Nadia said, yeah, of course Syrians are preferred because of the color, she said. And what I wrote down is as she rubs her own skin with her hand. And so she kind of rubbed her own cheek, her own face with her own fingers and said, yeah, Syrians are preferred because of their color. And that just that got to me. Please. I think a, an important thing to question when you discuss racism and talk about Syrians being preferred or other refugees being less preferred is to ask preferred by who right and really right. examine the institutions and the role that they play in creating these informal hierarchies of assistance in mm-hmm. in Cairo but also elsewhere who's being identified as a, a group that is worthy and in need of assistance mm-hmm. and how that assistance is parsed out let me, if I, if I may, I want to bring you into this because the other notes here, I want to, I want to not just pause on racism and, and say that's a fact, because that actually that question and that 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 statement by Nadia actually generated a lot of discussion among Saeed and Abdurrahman and Abdul Basit. These are the names I wrote down. Um, I mean, I, I think it was Sa- Saeed's Eritrean, I believe. Or Eritrean. yeah, so he said no, it's not because of their skin color; it's because of their work ethic. Abdurrahman chimed in. No, it's because of their language. <laughs> um, so it, it actually generated a discussion that 
some refugees in Cairo didn't speak Arabic or didn't speak very good Arabic before they got there. And even though Syrian dialect is different than Egyptian dialect, they could fit in quicker. We see this difference. We, we see this reality in Jordan. Oh, these are Syrians. They're our cousins. Literally, they're cousins coming across from Dara into northern Jordan. They're literally cousins. So they kind of fit in easier into Jordan than they did, let's say, in Turkey, let alone Serbia, Greece, uh, Germany, etc. Anyway, so that's that's one of the things I, w- I wanted to, to mention. Please. Well, I would examine it, you know, in, um, <clears throat> probably in comparison of um, their discourse or, you know, I mean, the access of service for other refugees, because in Egypt, for example, if we take an Egypt an example, and the Sudanese refugees in particular, there were also this division between Southern Sudanese and Northern Sudanese. Mm-hmm. And we went mm-hmm. also for interpretation because maybe uh, Sudanese speak uh, Arabic, maybe because they are Muslims. I mean, it's we we pointed to the religion and um, probably the ethnicity skin color, which is lighter than South Sudanese. Um, and even me, you know, and, uh, when I go on the streets of Cairo, they ask me, where are you from? From Sudan, from the south or from the north? Yeah. And when I say I'm from the north, they say, oh, you're our sisters and brothers because you're mm-hmm. Muslims and you're, we don't like these people from other areas in, the, um, yeah. in Sudan. So I think we should put, we should examine it in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the other structures that yeah. shapes the refugee experience in the mm. certain space or geography? Um, and then based on that, what are the perceptions around refugees? But also, I think equally important, since we're talking about responsibility sharing, we need to look at the attitudes of the international community and their, how they address this, you know, different groups of refugees. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's automatic, automatically your, your analysis would go into priorities of funding, we know that, you know, funds now go to Syrian refugees and this put them as privileged refugees as opposed to other groups of refugees. Just two quick points on that. Again, it's Mm -hmm. just, as I said, I saw this, we were in Istanbul a couple, actually almost two years ago, and the same thing, we were doing field work uh, on the sidelines of another workshop we were doing in Istanbul with Miracoach. And uh, we were going around Istanbul, and we went to a clinic, and uh, a health clinic, um, for refugees. And the medical doctor, the direct- director, who was an MD also, said, yeah, if, we get, if a Syrian walks into this building, we send them up to the street. And we say, don't, co- don't come to this center. You have a much nicer hospital that's just for you, just dedicated to Syrian refugees. And another more just personal anecdote, um, not, that was a, more of a professional one, but personally, my wife and I were walking up the street toward our Belgrade apartment, and this guy comes up to us, starts speaking in English to us, saying, I am Syrian, I'm Syrian, please help me, please. Get. And so we're like, ah, and we start speaking Arabic to the guy, and he couldn't understand a word. But he knew that, you know, if he wanted to get our heart motivated and our wallet open, all he had to say was he was a Syrian. It must have worked for him because finally we realized he was from Afghanistan, <laughs> Syrian. They asked the person, who are you? Um, uh, where are you from? He was like, I'm from Syria. And what do you do? Uh, what's your job? Egyptian. <laughs> 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 so they pretend. And also in Egypt, you know, like people from Ethiopia, um, Amhara pretend to be um, Oromo yeah. because Oromo is more like, you know, subordinated ethnic group and they have access to the system. So the system is creating... Yeah. 
vulnerabilities is the create the system itself it's creating yeah. vulnerabilities but it's also creating rewards yeah. um, refugees For are very, vulnerabilities refugees are very strategic and yeah. they they're yeah. able to recognize yeah. which identities um, and activities are rewarded mm -hmm. within this system so if I mean if you look at Dennis's example of this man claiming to be Syrian mm. because he knows that you know that can be advantageous in certain situations it's just a question of how do we you know interrogate the mm -hmm. way that this system is mm -hmm. set up and work work to make it better I, I just want to sum up here in the next few minutes again just my reflections uh, on this wonderful visit and again thank you Amira for well for starting mine 20 years ago with your friends and colleagues and taking us to your second home and uh, it was interesting that again the, the people we met were just fabulous people one guy uh, in particular that I I remember is Musa Musa Sudanese uh, uh, and he works for some organization called Pistic. It's an organization that provides uh, psychosocial support. psychosocial support, and what his in his, so here we here we have a Sudanese living in Cairo, and he tells us he used to work in Syria, as a community leader, helping Sudanese refugees in Syria, and now his situation is reversed. He's now a Sudanese refugee in Cairo working with Syrians. Mm -hmm. It just, uh, one, it shows that Cairo is Omadunya, as we say in Egypt. It's the mother of the world for good and for ill. And the ill is this desperate situation for millions and millions of people around the world. And they find themselves in Cairo. They, they get to Cairo. It's sort of like the Berlin of, of Africa, if you will. It's like everyone wants to get to Cairo. Uh, I've seen this again for over 30 years that, Egypt has been this gathering place. Not, that's a double-edged sword. It's a good thing. It's You're a bad thing. You're absolutely right. And yeah. this is exactly what refugees said. They said yeah. even though amongst you know all the suffering we have here, yeah. Cairo is the best place for us yeah. in terms yeah. of life conditions. Um, Cairo is big enough to absorb yep. everybody. Yep. Exactly. Huge in labor, informal labor market that. Exactly. Everyone, uh, mm -hmm. can yeah. 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 As, as grim as the picture we just painted, um, yeah. what some of these descriptions is, and we during our visit visited a a part of the city. Well, I guess it's outside of the city, known as Little Syria. Yes. Can you maybe talk about that, Am Amira, and describe it a little bit? Mm. Okay. Um, yes, uh, Ali, you mentioned earlier that refugees and migrants, refugees, I mean, I don't like the, <laughs> yeah, to draw lines between the yeah. two groups, but um, we know what, who we're talking about here. So uh, this group of um, refugees, you mentioned that refugees in Egypt are urban refugees. They don't live in camps. But they, they tend, um, and this is like a human probably instinct. Sure, exactly. They yeah. tend to live together and, yeah. and close yeah. to each other as a sign of support and solidarity and also socialization. So Syrians uh, picked, you know, uh, 6th of October as like a new mm -hmm. home for them. Uh, 6th of October, 6th of October is the city. Yeah. It's a city outside Cairo. So they, um, as we didn't, I mean, you have, you've been there, all of us yeah. have been there. We had this beautiful Syrian lunch yeah. in Little Syria. And mm -hmm. it's Little Syria basically because, I mean, everyone, if anyone goes there to visit, you will just notice that 
it's hugely populated by Syrian. There are lots of Syrian restaurants and food and goods that came directly from Syria, including another you know, beautiful oil, olive oil, and mm. the Syrian, you know, sweets and all that. So. Um, but you know, I mean, we all know Syrian food is the best in the world. So <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Can't so they argue brought with it that. to Cairo, yeah. and they brought it to Khartoum too. Yeah. When I when yeah. I was in Sudan two years ago, I saw the same thing. They have lots of restaurants. They sell food. So they're bringing you know beautiful culture to the yeah yeah, and finding ways to even though they're relegated to kind of these informal systems, really make mm-hmm. a community and. Mm-hmm. Businesses and well, again, restaurants for themselves. There, there is. A, I, I don't know if I quoted one of our friends. Yeah, no, Saeed, who said, "Oh, it's their work ethic." I mean, we see this all over. The, you see, okay, you go to Zatari refugee camp, and you, you know, the big thing there is the Shams Elysee. Literally, they call it or Shams Elysee. Oh, there is also a Shams Elysee in Cairo. Yeah, there's a Shams Elysee. Oh, is it is it Syrian run or <laughs> no? It's, no, okay. Uh, African. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Good. Um, but but you go also to downtown Amman, and you've got this street. They've renamed it uh, Shariel uh, Juan or something like the, mm-hmm. the street of the hungry people because it's filled with Syrian sweets and ref- restaurants and and that that street is shut down with traffic uh, every evening during Ramadan. It's just an amazing um, display of Syrian ingenuity, entrepreneurial spirit, etc. So, Dennis, can you give us kind of your big picture perspective then on, you know, the work and research you've done in Cairo over the last 30 years and how that compares to what you heard from the refugees in this most recent trip there? Uh, I, I, I want us to end on a high note at some point of this uh, uh, this podcast. But um, again, I, I think we mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to restate it here, sort of like the big picture summation is that uh, you know, Egyptians are well over 90 million people. There's a vast population. I don't even want to say it's a majority, but it could Inshallah. be a majority of poor uh, people, uh, impoverished people in a country that's environmentally collapsing, economically retrograde, politically bankrupt, I'll say. And yet, and yet, as we've said, despite all of its problems, Egypt is a refuge of convenience. People want to be in Egypt if, as a last resort. It's better than where they were, and it's better than the, the, the journey that they don't know if they'll make safely uh, and live through it, as so many people have died, uh, leaving host communities to another potential host community where they think it might be better. So Egypt is that, Egypt is that place. And again, just bring it back to Syrians themselves, the people we're interested in, but not to by any means uh, dismiss or exclude you know the other bigger reality of the Sudanese and many other refugee communities the Syrians we went to to meet with and meant to learn from, went to learn from um, as we said it's a it's a vibrant community no matter where they are it's a vibrant community they're struggling hard would that we would welcome more Syrians into the United States uh, we would greatly benefit uh, from those communities re-energizing whatever community they 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 land in and so that's my summation (laughs) any last words amira um well i think um yeah i mean i really enjoyed our discussion it was really really very interesting even though a big part of it was sad but there is always um a light at the end of the tunnel and i think it's um 
good time, it's a high time now for this international community, governments and NGOs and whoever, you know, works in relation to refugees and migrants to revise their strategies and their approaches and their agendas. Because again, if the the average time of a refugee, of the stay of refugee and their host community is 27 years, would that be called a refugee? Yeah. Would that be right. called a migrant? Would that be called an alien? So I think it's important to, um, and refugees always, and migrants always bring new culture, new perspective. They are always added value, and I think this is how we should look at, you know, the concept of integration. I mean, integration is a big potential durable solution for refugees. So this is how I'm going to end it. Can, can, I, can I extend your ending it there? Because I think I just want to say that, as, as the three of us know, um, this is where we're going. This is where BCARS wants to go next, is, is to look at not just for refugees, but for many, many, many communities around the, the, the Middle East um, who don't have proper citizenship rights or any citizenship rights, or maybe they are on paper a citizen, but they're not able to exercise those citizenship rights. And as you just said, you know, okay, you're, you're 27 years somewhere. You're no longer, you're still a refugee. Anyway, thank you both very much. Uh, Ali, thanks again for getting us moving toward, <laughs> toward this podcast. And Amira, thank you again for bringing us into your world in, in Cairo and joining us in our world here in, in Boston and in Cars. And uh, for our listeners, I just want to make sure you um, continue to follow us on our Facebook page, which you'll find by searching for Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies, or follow us uh, on Twitter at bcars underscore Boston. Check out our website, bcars-global.org, and there we frequently post updates on events, new publications, we have bulletins, you can join our mailing list, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you'd like to support BCARS or join our network, just contact me, Dennis Sullivan, at d.sullivan at northeastern.edu. And thank you for listening.